views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC or the Invisible Choir podcast. This case deals with extremely graphic depictions of domestic abuse and violence. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, get help. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Fate. By definition, the word means the development of events beyond a person's control, often regarded as being determined by a supernatural power. Other definitions state that fate describes something that was destined to happen, turn out, or act in a particular way. More often than not, it's commonplace to attribute this word with something positive, whether it be expressing how you met your significant other or fell in love, as in, it was fate, we were meant to be together. But by definition, this is not always the case. Fate can just as easily be equated to something terrible or a tragedy and even the pure evils that exist in the world. It's human nature for us as conscious beings to reflect on the idea of why we are here and what our purpose is in life and when will we actually leave this earth. You may have even had these inquisitive and thought-provoking conversations about the topic of death with those close to you. Or maybe you don't like to think about it at all. Out of sight, out of mind, as they say. However, it could very well be a curiosity that has brought you here. It might very well be why you were listening to this very podcast right now. Because you have an interest in fate and in your own mortality. Most of us that immerse ourselves in this topic often do so as a way to help us better understand and cope with the concept of our own impermanence. Let's face it. None of us will live forever. But have you ever wondered what it might be like to know that you are going to die by the hand of someone who allegedly loved you? For most, the question is an unfairly cruel hypothetical exercise. But if you've ever been in an emotionally or physically abusive relationship, perhaps you have feared for the worst for yourself. Maybe you've even felt that sense of danger before. Even still, When we wake up every morning and go about our daily routines, we tend not to think that this particular day could very well be our last. We tend to take these moments for granted. What happens if you are in that type of toxic relationship? What if you do feel helpless and no matter the advice gained from friends or family members, you simply cannot escape? Judy Malinowski, a 31-year-old woman from Columbus, Ohio, was a victim of such abuse and felt this way constantly. The pain and suffering Judy endured at the hands of a deranged boyfriend can only be described as monstrous. Judith Ann Malinowski was born on August 26, 1983, to her mother Bonnie and father Thomas, just outside of Columbus, Ohio. Growing up, her physical beauty radiated throughout the New Albany High School halls shining just as brightly as her personality. With a bright white smile, long blonde hair, and big blue eyes, Judy lit up and captivated almost any room that she walked into. She was well-liked, extremely popular, and her stunning looks only accompanied her amazing and kind-hearted character. Judy was a popular girl in high school, and for good reason. 
She was known to be a charismatic, yet also the first to lend a hand to anyone in need. She even won Miss New Albany, elected to be her school's homecoming queen before graduating in 2001. Judy was set to have a promising future. There was no denying that. She would certainly go far with her charm, wit, and all-around approachable demeanor. She had aspirations to better herself. Following high school, Judy had been accepted to Ohio State University, one of the most reputable state schools in the country, known for its academics and Division I NCAA championship sports programs. Um, I think as a young adult, her, her dreams were um, pretty simplistic. She wanted to graduate from Ohio State with elementary education degree. Um, she, like most young girls, wanted to get married and um, have children and teach elementary school. I would believe that's her, was her, matter of fact, I know that was her long-term goals. We spoke with Judy's mother, Bonnie, about her dreams and aspirations when she was admitted to Ohio State University. However, becoming a Buckeye at Ohio State would be short-lived after Judy fell pregnant with her first daughter, Kaylin, at the age of 21. She had been dating a man named Ron, Kaylin's father, and only three years later, the two would have their second child, another baby girl they named Madison. Judy took motherhood gracefully and naturally, though the relationship between her and Ron would eventually sour. Having to raise two children, Judy quickly realized that a stable income was essential, now more than ever, so she took on a position as a customer service representative. Even without graduating college, Judy had a good life, a full-time job, and an amazing support system. Judy's mother, Bonnie, was a doting grandmother, always willing to take care of the children whenever Judy needed help, as she settled into her new role as a young parent. Judy considered herself lucky and never took for granted the vast amount of love she had in her corner from both family and her many friends. However, just as Judy had seemingly found her rhythm and was maneuvering past all of life's obstacles, one hurdle would obstruct her path that she simply could not avoid. In April of 2006, tragedy struck when Judy Malinowski was sadly diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She was just 27 years old. Um, well, it was quite surprising because she went in for a benign cyst at a very young age. So um, that diagnosis was um, not within the general medical stats. Um, the doctor had the approach was slow. We, we didn't know that it would exacerbate into what it did um, when she found out she first had the cancer. They, because she was so young, they were trying to um, save one ovary at a time. So they took a small piece, you know, of it. Um, so she really didn't go into a full-blown diagnosis of cancer, you know, throughout um, her female organs. You know, it was on one a spot on one ovary. And then it um, began to spread over time as they were trying to save um, her ability to have children. She had already had Kaylin, and then um, she went in for a benign cyst. And during the cancer diagnosis and them doing um, taking part of the ovary and her going through um testing, you know, to be whether or not, you know, she was cancer free and biopsies and what have you. Um, she conceived Madison and um, had a real tough time during um, because of the cancer and kidney, her, she had some kidney problems too through 
all of this. Um, she was able, though, to sustain the pregnancy, have Madison. The cancer continued. Um, I understand that the pregnancy has probably um, intensified the cancer because of the hormones, you know, through the pregnancy. Um, hence causing her to eventually have a complete and total hysterectomy and to battle cancer. Judy's diagnosis and subsequent battle with cancer turned her life completely upside down. With her future in mind and the hopes of good things to come, Judy's plans would be derailed for the foreseeable future as a result of these health complications. After multiple visits to the hospital and after several surgeries, naturally Judy and her immediate family feared for the worst. After roughly one year of these continuous appointments and carrying the emotional burden of uncertainty, Judy was finally given some good news. The doctors informed her that for the first time since her diagnosis, she was 100% cancer-free. She couldn't believe it. The now 28-year-old woman was beside herself in relief, as was her mother Bonnie, who had been by her side each step of the way. Finally, some much-needed positivity was bestowed upon the family. Yet before they even had time to celebrate, and just when Judy thought she was finally in the clear, the cancer had returned only 15 months later, this time viciously growing at a more rapid pace than before. It is unimaginable how taxing this must have been on Judy, not only physically, but psychologically as well, not knowing what was going to happen to her. With the intense rate at which the cancer was growing, Judy was left without any reasonable options other than to undergo a complete hysterectomy surgery. She would no longer be able to have children in the future. As a young mother of two, the thought of not being able to have another child if she so desired was disheartening, but it was her only hope for survival, and Judy was strong. She tried to find the good in every situation that life threw her way. She was grateful that she had her two daughters with her during these troubling times. Madison, having just been born months before, Judy learned of her cancer. Ultimately, she would consent to the necessary procedure. But just as she'd learned from when she thought she was cancer-free previously, the Malinowski family knew there were no guarantees. But after speaking at length with Judy's mother, Bonnie, not only was her daughter fighting cancer, she was quietly facing another battle. Uh, back when Judy was diagnosed with cancer, or let's rewind even before the cancer, she had been going to her OBA, um, obstetrician and he complaining of um, side pain of you know pain 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 and he began giving her pain medicine um, for a cyst on her ovaries now she, she's very young uh, she had Kaylee at 21 so she's probably 22 that would have been and let's see Kaylee is going to be Kaylee is going to be 18 so you know, let's say, let's just for even argument's sake, we'll, we'll round, we'll say 15 years, albeit it was um, perhaps maybe a little longer. Um, so they started writing her prescription for pain pills for what they thought was just a benign cyst on her ovary. So it started there. And then they finally said, well, you know, it's not going away. We'll just go in and we'll remove that small cyst. Now, she's young. The, the odds of her having ovarian cancer, any kind of cancer, was uh, and not very likely. So 
when the surgeon went in or her obstetrician went in to remove that, that's when he said it was very suspicious of um, cancer. And I'll, I'll never forget that day when I walked into the hospital and he wanted to talk to me. Um, so that started Judy's journey of, you know, she stayed on the pain medicine um, in and out of the hospital. You know, they took part of one ovary. She's still on pain medicine. They, you know, took another part of the ovary. She's still on pain medicine. Um, so that's really how, I, and, and I, I have to be honest, one of the hardest things for me was during this time prior to them doing her final surgery when they did the complete hysterectomy, um, it was a, a, a fair amount of time um, because they were trying to do all they could. And I remember Judy stood on the landing of our stairway and she said to me, um, and it's a tough thing to carry as a mom because I didn't know what I didn't know. She said to me, mom, I, I really think I'm getting addicted to these pain pills. I, I really need these pain pills. And I said, oh, Judy, just take them like the doctor tells you. It'll be fine. Just take them. Having no idea. I didn't have any idea of opiate addiction. She didn't. I didn't. And at that time, um, we um, as a society did not understand the strength of the opiates that were being pushed throughout um, our medical system. You know, we, we just didn't know that we didn't know how strong these pharmaceuticals were. Um, so, I, you know, I, I do carry that with me and, and she did, you know, take those for a long time up until she had the surgery. Um, and then once she had the surgery and <clears throat> completed all of her treatment, they had found some, found some cancer, I think, in her lump nodes also and um, some other places. She stayed on those opiates for that long. Then they just gave her her script after surgery and then didn't. Um, renew them. So that's how she, the system really failed her because um, I didn't know the doctor just quit giving them after her surgery. And then, you know, she was thrown into menopause and thrown off all these opiates that she had been on for over a year and a half. So um, that, you know, that was certainly a good lesson learned. Some of you may be personally aware of just how common this unfortunate occurrence actually is. Most of us know someone that has come out of the hospital, been prescribed highly addictive painkillers, and then formed a habit, just like Judy did. As a point of reference, some 191 million Americans were prescribed opiates for pain management in 2017 alone, with an estimated 11.5 million self-reporting that they were abusing the medication, though that number is thought to be much higher. The CDC actually estimates that one in four people who are prescribed opiates for long-term pain management eventually become addicted to them. To put what most now openly refer to as the opioid epidemic into perspective, from the year 2000 through 2015, approximately 500,000 individuals have overdosed and died from opiates. Sound excessive? That's because it is. Regardless of what your personal opinion is on big pharma and legal drug dealing in this country, the situation Judy found herself in was very much a shared reality among many millions of Americans. Once the scripts finally ran out, she was left with a terrible habit. 
She had no way of supplementing her new addiction once the prescription was cut off and the price of finding narcotics on the street through friends comes at a pretty hefty markup, an option that most are unable to sustain. So what ultimately happens in those cases? Well, many will seek out a cheaper yet severely more dangerous alternative, heroin. And sadly, Judy Malinowski, the young mother of two, would do just the same. Now, she did come to me eventually and tell me, and, and one of the things that I remember very clearly that she told me on why she had turned to street drugs for opiates and um, who had helped her get these street drugs. Um, she said to me, Mom, if I don't take these, I'm sick, and I don't want to be sick. And I remember being perplexed at that because, again, the, the education wasn't out there. And, and I don't think it's still I don't, today, even today, I think there's still a huge stigma on um, people who have been addicted to opiates or get addicted to opiates from whether it's chronic pain or they just try them um, and, and have that addictive gene. I, I think society still puts a stigma on them and has no idea of really um pardon the expression, but the hell that they go through to even try to live somewhat of a normal life. 2007, roughly one year after Judy's hysterectomy, she had still been on and off with the father of their two children. They tried to make things work for the kids' sake, but always seemed to end up back at square one, fighting, one argument after the next. Eventually, the two would finally split up for good, Judy was out of work, receiving social security benefits on disability due to her surgery, while still having to provide for two young girls. On top of that, she was left trying to kick an ugly addiction, withdrawing and becoming physically ill whenever she couldn't get drugs. Judy's addiction continued spiraling out of control until she was eventually leaving both of her daughters with her mother, Bonnie, for days on end while she disappeared to get high. I did have to learn to figure out what was help versus what was enabling. Um, of course, because I was blinded and didn't know um, addiction and didn't understand it, I I'm sure in the beginning um, I was enabling by helping her um, financially, not knowing that I was enabling. And then um, as time went on, Judy was in... She loved her kids so much, and, and interesting enough, Judy was more, I would say she either would do drugs just enough to not be sick and you couldn't tell, or she would binge use and say, oh, you know, you guys are going to stay with, you know, the girls are going to stay with grandma for, you know, three days. Mom, you keep the kids for a few days or, you know, what have you. And then she would binge use if she knew. Um, we had... Judy was my firstborn, and um, how blessed I was, because I think, you know, we kind of, I had her at a young age of 21, and we, we sort of grew up together, and um, we, I had a son um, a day after she had my first granddaughter and her firstborn, Kaylin, so we had a very unique bond. I think that Judy and I were blessed because it didn't destroy us. I think it um, made us stronger. Now, um, I have to be forthcoming um, and tell you that there was not a drug house that I did not go beat on a door at 
um, and, and there was no place that I would not go to find her, and there was no street when she decided that I didn't go. <laughs> Most people here in Ohio um, knew me because if, if she did go to Benj, um, I didn't stop till I found her. And um, this went on for a long time, and it was a hard, very hard road to walk. I have a son with Down syndrome um, that's a day apart from her oldest daughter. But um, she knew it was because I loved her. And, um, you know, I was really blessed. Judy was never, Judy was never disrespectful to me or really anybody, even under the influence of drugs. And I, I think it's probably... I think if you pulled anybody who knew her, I'm fairly certain they would all say the same thing. So um, because of her nature and because, you know, of who she was, it, it I don't think it destroyed or hindered our relationship. But albeit it is not to say I cannot tell you the nights that I sat there as any parent wondering if I was going to get that call, clenching my phone and awake most of the night worrying it was I going to get a call or was that Jane Doe my child that they found after several years of ups and downs managing her addiction as best she knew how while preserving her relationships Judy eventually rediscovered her sobriety but while on the fast track to recovery she would meet another man a man named Michael Slager Slager was almost 10 years older than Judy a friend of a friend who worked as a construction worker in and around the Columbus, Ohio area. Judy and Michael were just acquaintances, at first anyways. The two started hanging out with each other more and more, because although Slager didn't do hard drugs himself, he knew people that did, and he knew how to get them, quite easily in fact. He came in very late. Um, Judy had gained her sobriety, was living in her own um, condo um, about half mile from me, taking care of her children. Um, she was clean. Um, we had self-paid to get her through a rehab center that was successful, which was um, a lot of money. And uh, there again, the system fails you because you know you either have to wait for a bed or you go through detox and then you have to wait for long term. And um, I, I don't know what people do, you know. Um, I borrowed on my retirement to pay for her sobriety because here the system the courts send them through a drug rehab facility um, at least here in Ohio and then the rehab facilities are so full because of the court ordered drug rehab those particular people for the most part and I say this um, in generality because not all are not ready to be clean and sober so they're ordered into this rehab detox and then you put your child in there or you wait for a bed for her to learn to <clears throat> after she's detoxed and 80, 90% of them are court ordered. So there's more drugs going in the front door and out the back door than those who um, have wanted to get sober that weren't court ordered. So I definitely think there's two different populations that end up in some of these um state um, facilities. So Judy ended up in a private facility that um, certainly did her uh, the world of good and she was able to get sobriety. Um, 
you know, and it didn't, you know, we went through the state programs and, you know, she, she didn't just go and get sober, obviously. Relapse was part of this. But um, once she had, um, oh, I don't know, two, three years, I can't tell you exactly, sobriety under her belt. She had the kids. She's living here. Um, Michael had gotten um, out of prison and um, she met him on Facebook and they reconnected on Facebook and... May and he took her life in August and the beginning of August um, of course she lived but um, during that time he began bringing her home um, to her house opiates I'd called the police and said you know he needs to leave um, you know and the police actually said to me um, this was the first time that he was there. They said he's paid his debts to society, and um, unless Judy comes home and asks him to leave, we're not. We can't tell him to leave. It's her house. So I had said, you know, look at him, blah blah blah, and they would make him leave. Our first encounter, if you will, of rehab center fails, and now um, the police fail her, and. She then went to restraining orders, and um, unless you get conserved that person with a restraining order, you know, those become very complex too. And now she's addicted to um, opiates again, and she's trying to get off that, go to a rehab center, obviously, when he um, took her life. Uh, that That's when he came in. To play you know it was she was doing very well and um, he admitted in court that he began taking her opiate so he could stay there kind of a meal ticket you know remember by this point Judy had a full-blown habit and Michael Slager seemed to conveniently insert himself into Judy's life when she was at her worst Slager's ex-girlfriend Michelle had recently died from a heroin overdose even though Judy was aware of this, she continued to hang around Michael Slager. By this point, Judy was using on a regular basis in order to get her fix, all stemming from the pills she had been given in the hospital. Michael Slager was always the one to provide Judy with heroin, her habit becoming so out of control that he was eventually bringing her a gram a day to shoot up. Things were looking bad for Judy and going downhill very quickly, not to mention once Michael and Judy started officially dating, things became worse and more abusive. Slager was extremely controlling. He used Judy's dependency on heroin as a way to keep her close to him. She needed him now, and he knew it. He had a proverbial stranglehold on her. As Judy had now graduated from perks and oxys to heroin, and soon even began smoking crack cocaine. Her drug habit became so bad that her mother Bonnie could no longer allow her to live in her home. She loved Judy with all of her heart, but she could not allow herself to enable her daughter any longer. Bonnie feared for Judy's safety as she was now essentially homeless and the everyday uncertainty weighed on her. One thing Bonnie was sure of, however, was her feelings towards Michael Slager. Bonnie wasn't aware of the exact details surrounding the couple's arrangement at the time but she knew that it wasn't good. She felt the mother's intuition that something wasn't right with this guy. And more often than not, a mother's intuition usually ends up revealing the truth. It was very early on. Um, 
she had realized she, we had had an agreement that he wouldn't be around her children. Um, I said, I don't have a good feeling about this person, Judy. I really don't. And they had some common friends in the past. Um, and I said, no, I don't think those common friends were, you know, good. And of course I had had a, um, I was guilty of, um, and, and I do seek forgiveness. I was guilty of judging the book by his cover. Um, but when you talk about manipulation and you talk about abuse, I fell into that because I did have those warning signs. And I said to Michael very early on when Judy would bring the kids over, because we agreed that the girls would not be around him while she was dating him and he came to my home and I went to the driveway to see what is why he was in my driveway and he said I want you to know and this was very early on very very early on when he started began to date Judy and he said I know you have a problem with me dating your daughter and um, I think you claim to be a Christian woman and I try to quote him, you claim to be a Christian woman, then why are you judging me by the ink on my skin? And I did think, well, maybe he's at that point very early on, I did think, well, maybe he's right. I mean, and again, I didn't know all the priors and the stewardess and, you know, the, I thought, am I judging someone maybe? So if I thought that, you, I can only imagine with Judy being a former addict and opiates put in there and all the opiates she wanted he was bringing to her, I can only imagine how she was deterred as well. No matter how many times she tried to quit using hard drugs, Judy would always wind up back under the wing of Michael Slager, the man who had heroin whenever she needed it. Judy had unfortunately been displaced to seedy motels forced to lay her head in one room for a few days or up to a week before bouncing to her next temporary home. She had nowhere to go, or at least it seemed that way. She felt stuck. Judy began paying weekly rates for cheaper rooms while panhandling on the street to get money for her next high. This was Judy's world, and wherever she went, sure enough, Michael Slager wasn't far behind, still bringing Judy heroin, though interestingly, never using it himself. He was not a user. That is very true. He did not ever use, to my knowledge, it never came up in court. Um, he never uh, was a drug user. That's the interesting part. Um, Judy's drug of court of choice was heroin or opiates, prescription opiates. Um, and that just stands from, you know, her path and where she had been. Um, and he kept bringing her home um, more and more drugs and um, every night it just he, he brought them and I had called the police multiple times and um, the police would they just wouldn't help they just would not they you know he's paid his dues and I on one 911 call I know I spoke to the policemen too they came out and they said to me you know, again, they, oh, he paid his debt to society and uh, she's in hot, she's high in there. And I said, I said, no, 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 you don't get it. And I tried to explain to them and they had been out there multiple times. And of course, I was a frantic mom. And I said, you know what, I want to talk to your sergeant. And 
I called in to talk to the sergeant, and this is no, and, and, and I have nothing, I am nothing but respect for police, but I did call and talk to the sergeant, and do you know that sergeant told me if I didn't like it, call internal affairs. That is no joke. I said, you you guys have been out here, and, and I, I don't know, by that time it was over 15 times. Said, he's bringing her the drugs, and he just said, you know, um, you don't like it, call internal affairs. Slager's attempts to control Judy only escalated as the years passed. On one occasion, the two engaged in a particularly volatile screaming match after Judy realized that Slager had downloaded a GPS tracking application on her phone to keep tabs on her. This was textbook toxic and emotional abuse to the nth degree. If you've ever been in an abusive relationship, or hell, just a generally shitty one, it never seems like abuse while you're in it. Only after one is able to separate themselves, to take themselves entirely out of the situation and look inward, sometimes even years later, only then do those at the receiving end of the malice and mistreatment realize just how messed up things actually were. But that's only if you were able to get out, because not everyone does. Mix in the extreme drug use and the inevitable fog that Judy had been living in for years, that's a recipe for disaster. Judy masked the shame she felt by continuing to use, a vicious cycle of waking up and getting high, lather, rinse, repeat for years on end. She wasn't able to have her daughters still, and she knew it was for good reason. Judy knew how lucky she was to have a mother like Bonnie who cared so deeply for her, taking on the responsibility of nurturing her own children while she struggled during this unfortunate time in her life. She wanted desperately to get clean but felt helpless. Having a controlling boyfriend spoon-feed an addict free heroin certainly wasn't helping either. Then one day in March of 2015, Judy had a close call herself, almost meeting the same fate as Slager's ex-girlfriend. She had overdosed in a La Quinta hotel room that she had been living out of. Michael Slager called 911 out of fear that Judy was dying in front of his eyes. Paramedics would soon arrive, and luckily Judy would survive this frightening incident. But it was a wake-up call of sorts. This was the first time she had almost lost her life due to drugs. She knew something had to be done in regards to making a change. She thought of Kaylin and Madison, now 12 and 16 years old, and how they needed their mother. So after cheating death once, Judy finally decided that enough was enough. Sunday, August 2nd, 2015. 31-year-old Judy Malinowski had decided it was time. She had tried to go to treatment before, but it never worked out for one reason or another. On one occasion, Judy had filled out all of the paperwork, sitting in the lobby, about to check herself in to the Talbot House, a rehab facility in Columbus. Yet, once she found out she wouldn't be able to smoke cigarettes at this particular treatment center, she walked out, but not today. Today was going to be different for Judy. It was a beautiful summer day in Columbus, Ohio, with weather in the high 80s while the bright sun was shining. It was a perfect day for a new beginning, a new start the perfect day to get clean. Judy had just received a call back from the woods at Parkside, an addiction treatment center in the neighboring town of Gahanna, Ohio. They had a bed available. She informed her boyfriend Michael Slager of the call and asked him for a ride there. Slager agrees, 
but Judy had a few things she wanted to do before heading into rehab. One of those things was getting high just one last time. Slager naturally obliged her request and ran the errand for Judy, putting the phone call in to pick up a bag of heroin for his girlfriend. Judy would later mention that she had plans to see her children before leaving for rehab as well, only she would never show up. It wasn't until later that Sunday evening when Bonnie Bowes, Judy's mother, finally got the call she had been most dreading. Um, I, I, I don't think I'll ever forget it. Uh, it was a Sunday evening, and um, the children were at my home, and Judy was going to come by and talk to them because the kids didn't know it, her girls did not know it, but she was going to go into um, a private rehab center um, where we felt she was safe and get the help that she needed. Um, and she knew, you know, what, you know, the, the danger that she was in with him bringing her drugs and she knew she had to get away from him and she couldn't, you know, through the whole track record. And so I was waiting for her and, and the children were too, and they didn't know that they were going to stay with me for a few days until their mom came to talk to them. And the phone rang. I answered it. It was about five o'clock. And I remember a nurse on the phone asked me um, questions about Judy and allergies and uh, just all sorts of stuff. And she said, there's been, and I quote her, an accident and your daughter is here at OSU Hospital. It didn't register too much to me, like the severity at the time and she said to me you should come to the hospital she said to go to the front desk and tell them who I was and someone would come get me and then as a matter of fact as we went to hang up sort of a by the way she said do you have any um, religious beliefs or preferences that would prevent us from innovating Judy and I said no and it didn't it still didn't sink into me and she she said okay we'll see you when you get here so I got in my car and um, I was driving and then I, I know how to get to OSU hospital I've been there many times and I'm driving and halfway there and suddenly it dawned on me that they were asking me to innovate my child and it, it I realized it how bad it must be and I couldn't remember how to get to the hospital and there I was in the middle of this freeway and I could not I just, I had no recollection. I I had no idea how to get there. And I called a friend and they, she talked me through each step of the way. And when I went into the hospital, they took me back. And while I was walking back, don't you know, I looked over in a, like a triage room or maybe like a, yeah, I guess you would say like a triage room or something where you maybe it's not so severe, you know, where they're helping people. And I, I see Michael there. And I said, 
I, I just, I went flying in there because, you know, you just do that. Where's my daughter? Where's Judy? Where's Judy? And they, I remember his hand was up in the air and they were bandaging it. And I didn't know why. Again, I don't know anything that's happened. I'm just yelling, where's, where's my child? Where's my child? And he, and I remember he just kept saying, it's an accident. It's an accident. And I, What's an accident? And, and then, of course, there's all these police in there. And next thing I know, there's a policeman shuffling me out of there. And he's saying he's sorry. It's an accident. And I never forget that. And he was in this bed. He had his jeans, no shirt, and his arm in the air. And he just kept saying, I'm sorry, it was an accident. It was an accident. I'm sorry. I, I ended up in this small, tiny room and he, with a policeman and a chapel, the chaplain. Um, and then at that point, I just kept screaming, tell me there's hope because they came in and said that um, Judy has been badly burned. And I just kept saying, tell me there's hope. Um, because at that time, Judy was in the trauma bay and um, they were working on her and they had not sustained her airway. They had criked her at the scene and got an airway just by accident because they were um, actually practicing and the sky was good, got an airway. Um, but to get that temporary airway onto a ventilator is um, uh, pretty tricky and, and not done often successfully. After picking up the drugs earlier that afternoon, Michael Slager pulled into a nearby fast food restaurant where Judy could shoot up in a bathroom. Once she returned to the vehicle, the two then stopped to get her a few things including cosmetics, personal items, and a pair of yoga pants. Slager had a disgruntled temper the entire afternoon, and though we're not exactly sure why, the circumstances surrounding this day are quite telling. Perhaps he didn't want Judy to go to rehab. After all, this would mean losing a sense of control over her, a grip he had had on Judy for many years. A man who supplies his girlfriend with heroin daily to ensure she's constantly subdued and remains by his side certainly might interpret starting a sober and healthier lifestyle to be a threat. Regardless, Slager was visibly becoming more and more agitated. The two began bickering back and forth, arguing over anything and everything throughout the course of the day. Judy eventually asked Slager to pull into a nearby Speedway gas station so she could grab cigarettes, Marlboro Black Label 100s to be exact. See, Parkside would allow you to smoke cigarettes, unlike the Talbot House Treatment Center. This played a significant role in Judy's decision of where she would choose to seek help. If she was going to kick drugs once and for all, she knew she needed to still be able to smoke. If nothing else, she was being honest with herself. After turning the corner and into the Speedway parking lot at 376 Agler Road in Gahanna, Slager angrily throws the truck in park as he continues to argue with Judy. The exact nature of this argument remains unknown. Slager then exits the vehicle, slams the truck door, and frustratedly walks into the convenience store. Extremely upset from the argument, Judy gets out of the truck and walks behind the speedway, which is connected to a bank parking lot with a drive-up ATM. Judy needed to separate herself from Michael at this moment to cool off. It's unclear what exactly the two had said to one another, that made Judy so upset. Regardless, 
what would happen next renders any of those trivial details to be completely meaningless. Because what Michael Slager was about to do to his girlfriend is by far one of the most torturous acts one could ever inflict upon another human being, let alone their so-called significant other. Michael Slager was about to do the unthinkable, and Judy Malinowski never even saw it coming. With cigarettes now in hand, Michael Slager walks out of the speedway, only to realize that Judy is not in the passenger seat. He becomes enraged, looking around and wondering where she had run off to. He then proceeds to get into his truck and circles the perimeter of the gas station, searching for her. He quickly locates Judy behind the speedway, as she hadn't gone far, standing in the adjacent savings bank parking lot. Slager furiously demands that Judy get back in the truck, but she refuses. The two began fighting again, but this time the argument had reached a new peak of anger. Whatever had been bottled up inside of Michael Slager all day long was now boiling over in the form of degrading obscenities directed squarely at Judy. She continued to reject his aggressive demands for her to get back in the truck, Slager again slams the vehicle into park, this time to confront Judy face to face, while relentlessly screaming at her. The two argued for a few minutes, enough time for several passerbys to stop and take notice. Then suddenly, Judy throws a large plastic cup of soda that she had been drinking as hard as she could at Michael Slager. The cup exploded upon impact, splashing soda everywhere and all over Slager. This was the moment where he lost it. And we have to warn you, what you're about to hear next is extremely graphic. We encourage those with weak stomachs or those with any sensitivity to triggers relating to trauma to please be advised in regard to the nature of the events we will recall next. Michael Slager, now seeing red in a blind rage, storms to the bed of his truck and grabs a large full canister of gasoline. He then walks over to Judy, still cursing at her, and begins pouring gasoline over her head. You want to throw a pop on me? See what I do to you, bitch. How do you like that? Slager screams at the top of his lungs while dousing his girlfriend in petrol from head to toe. Judy frantically screams for help as she's unaware of what exactly is happening to her. Slager continued dumping the fluid on her, starting at her head and working his way down to her feet until every inch of Judy Malinowski's body was covered in gasoline. She desperately tried to run away, but she tripped, then falling to the ground after coming out of one of her shoes. While defenseless, sitting on the pavement, Judy struggles to scream as she's now choking, gargling on the gasoline as some had gotten into her mouth and had begun to sting her throat. She couldn't see or yell loud enough for anyone to hear. Judy then tries to wipe the gasoline from her eyes. For a moment, she senses Slager was gone. Maybe he left, she thought. And he had indeed walked away, but not for long. Thirty seconds later, Judy sees Michael Slager has returned through her blurred peripheral vision. He was now holding a lighter. She begged him to stop. Why? Please stop, she cried. But he said nothing, just looked at her with a blank stare. Slager then flicks the lighter, walks towards Judy with the flame in hand as she ignites fully engulfed in flames and only a matter of seconds. I need you to stop screaming because I can't understand what you're saying. Judy was now flailing, desperately trying to put out the fire, but her whole body was aflame. Spectators stared in shock while others attempted to run to her aid, 
but no one had any idea of what to do. Michael Slager stood over her, catatonic and emotionless, as the 911 calls began pouring in. Somebody just set a woman on fire, but she just ignited immediately. Okay, she's still on fire, sir? He just grabbed a fire extinguisher from inside Speedway. She's on the ground. I mean, it was bad. Finally, after learning what had just happened, someone from inside the Speedway came running out the back entrance, holding a fire extinguisher. The man struggled to put out the massive human flame that was Judy Malinowski's body. But by the time it was finally extinguished, Judy had already stopped moving. She had lost consciousness moments earlier and blacked out. No one could believe what they had just witnessed, and as emergency personnel arrived and rushed Judy to the hospital, Michael Slager was just as quickly taken into police custody. Citizens that were present on scene stood in the parking lot in complete disbelief at what they had just witnessed. A woman who was just doused in gasoline and lit on fire right in front of their eyes in broad daylight by her complete creature of a boyfriend. It was clear to the people there that day that Judy Malinowski had little to no chance of surviving the incident, and it's safe to say that this was the most horrific thing that anyone there would ever witness in their entire lifetime. As for Judy, she was rushed off to the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center's burn unit, where after several hours of initial emergency treatment, her mother Bonnie and a growing crowd of close family members got their first look at the horrific aftermath of the attack. I'm going to guess it was um, four hours. So I was in this tiny room and um, I, I just kept, I just remember it felt like, and I'm sure it wasn't, but it just felt so long. I just kept saying, I couldn't say the words other than tell me there was hope um, to the chaplain. And as we prayed and we prayed and I just begged God to let her live, um, OSU finally got the crike onto a vent and took her up to the trauma unit um, or the burn unit, if you will, slash trauma unit. And um, they were debriding her by scraping all the skin off. So they made me wait even longer. And they came out finally after about maybe four or five hours and they said, Um, My daughter was there by this time, Um, some family members were there, and they came out and the head of the burn unit and a nurse and said that they just kept cautioning me saying, well, you got to understand, she's not going to look like herself, she's not going to look like herself, and, you know, I was in mom mode, you know, and I kept saying, I I want to see my child, I want to see my child, and and I I didn't care what they were telling me about what she looked like, I just needed to see her, and they just kept saying, she's not going to look like herself, and I remember thinking that they just didn't understand, it was my child, and it, they kept telling me it wasn't going to look like her and I didn't care. It was still my child. So I remember feeling conflict at that time. And so they finally decided they would let us go back. And as we were scrubbing and gowning and and, um, because burns, there's such a risk for infection. And Judy was burned so badly that um, there was only a very, very small place on the inside of her calf that was not... um, a third or fourth degree burn and we went back there and 
she was completely black. Um, and I just remember walking to the head of the bed and just so, I was just so thankful that machine was breathing and for her and my daughter, um, I didn't know this because I was up there holding Judy's hand. Um, Judy's sister walked out in the hallway and I understand that Judy's sister began vomiting because it was so horrific and she just kept vomiting and crying and vomiting and crying and then you know other family members were obviously traumatized. I would say traumatized is a fair word to see somebody um, burned. Um, I mean, when you're burned 95% of your body and you're doused in gasoline and then some, you know, she had taken like four or five blows to the head and then she was doused in gasoline and then set on fire. Um, they, although it looked like my child to me, to others, it was um, horrific. I mean, it was beyond description. Judy Malinowski was alive but in critical condition. She was placed into a medically induced coma, suffering fourth and fifth degree burns to more than 80% of her body. She was partially blind and had lost all of her fingers on her left hand, with the exception of her pinky and ring fingers having been reduced to stubs, burnt off at the knuckle. Both of Judy's ears had been completely singed off. Her right nostril was left a gaping elongated hole having burnt away almost all of the surrounding cartilage. Judy was completely unrecognizable to just about everyone except her mother, Bonnie. It was a miracle that she was even still alive. Doctors couldn't believe that she still had a pulse. Judy would eventually wake up from the coma sometime later, though she was initially nonverbal, as the fire had severely burnt her esophagus and trachea as a result of having swallowed the gasoline. The fire had burnt the inside of her body as well. Physicians told Bonnie, Judy's mother, that her daughter would most likely not survive due to the severity of her burns. But Judy was fighting, fighting as hard as she could, knowing in the back of her subconscious mind that she had two daughters who had just been told their mother was lit on fire behind a gas station in Gahanna. Sure enough, the man that Bonnie had a bad feeling about from the beginning was the one responsible for burning her daughter alive. While Michael Slager sat in his holding cell, waiting to be formally charged and with a bond set at $1 million, Judy was desperately clinging to life in the hospital, unsure of what her outcome would be as a result of this senseless and inhumane attack. Looking at it today versus when it happened, um, I certainly um, have two different I have two different views. At that time, I was so happy that I could finally see her and praying that she was alive when I was saying, tell me there was hope because I couldn't say the words that she was gone or had died. I was so happy to see her that I could not see the burns. All I could see was my child was there, was there. And um, the head of the burn unit, came to me that 
uh, evening, and we were only allowed to see her for a short time, and we were gowned in sterile gowns. And he said, I don't think we should, and I I think I can quote him, I I don't think we should resuscitate her because um, burns are really hard and they're tricky. And he gave the analogy that it's like trying to get down a huge football field with landmines planted everywhere. You just really can't make it down the field. And he said, in his view, she would not be able to sustain these injuries and resuscitation probably wasn't an um, an option. That's what he had said to me. And I remember, and sir, I'm not a disrespectful person at all. Um, I have the utmost respect for people and their um, expertise. But at that moment, I walked over to the head doctor and I I don't, I just pointed my finger at his chest, um, which is truly trauma takes over because it's truly, I would not be disrespectful. And I just kept pointing at his chest and I kept saying, Hey, you know what? You will resuscitate her. I said, you do not get to play um, God. I said, God decides who lives and who dies and it's not medicine and it's not you. I said, you'll do everything you can to resuscitate my child. Do you understand me? Everything you can. I will agree to nothing less than that. And he said, you don't understand. I said, no, you don't understand. God is her physician. You're not God and you can't play God. And I remember he ripped off his sterile gown. He threw it in the trash and he said he would stop by tomorrow. Now it's like three in the morning or four in the morning. And um, that was the start of our 700 day journey. Um, he was, you know, successful. He gave us um, 700 days, albeit she never left the hospital. Um, Judy woke up. She, you know, made peace with God. She's seen, she shared with me what the other side of the veil was like and the angels that she's seen. Um, so it turned in, God turned it into a whole nother, a whole nother miracle story, if you will, um, as dark as it was, it was equally as beautiful if you have to lose a child. Judy Malinowski lay on her back in a hospital bed in the burn center, fighting not only for her life, but for every single breath, for 700 long days. In that time, she would undergo some 60 surgeries, experiencing seven cardiopulmonary arrests, or redlining, effectively dying before doctors worked to resuscitate her, because her work was not yet done. Though she was unable to speak after first awakening from her medically induced coma, Judy Malinowski had a story to tell and she desperately hung on to ensure that she could tell it herself in her own words so that no other woman in the state of Ohio or across the entire United States for that matter would have to endure the insurmountable pain and suffering that she did at the hands of a romantic partner. 
Tune in next time to hear the simultaneously heartbreaking and inspirational conclusion to this case directly from Judy's mother and from Judy herself. Thank you.